the Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival. Get a free program at dockedge.nz. We're just chocker with stuff this evening. Um, do be listening in Byron News around about 10.30. A beautiful scenic sanctuary uh, that was saved from the axe. Banks smack in the middle of cow country in Taranaki. It's hiding there, really. Rotokari Scenic Reserve, lovely place. We'll take you for a virtual tour. Uh, that's at 10.30, as I said. Big Star is the legendary cult band, really. Uh, their album Third, especially, came out in 1978. That's what we're looking at with Grant Smithies after 11 o'clock. And on a musical bent, don't miss, P.P. Arnold sang with all the stars in the 1960s, especially the small faces. Just check her out on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. She's on tomorrow night after 10 o'clock. All sorts of sciencey stuff this hour, as usual. Grant Christie with some fabulous astronomy news. We've got some links on the Weekend Variety Wireless uh, for you, supplementary to astronomy, so do check them out. And next up, Science Report with Matthew Egbert, Computer Science Department, Auckland University. Good evening and special hello if you're listening on the podcast. The Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival. For details, visit dockedge.nz. Science Report this week with Matthew Egbert from University of Auckland, computer science, and um, you think quite hard about how things think uh, and uh, the synapses and the brain versus the digital as yep. well. We may end up being digital, I don't know. <laughs> uh, do you think we're digital? I don't, no. no. Oh, heretic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not the most popular opinion, I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the, the dominant way people think about, about the brain is, is if it's like a computer. Mm. Um, and, and there's this uh, quote uh, from John Searle that I love uh, because he, he sort of points out how this way of thinking about uh, the brain as a computer is a product of our times rather mm -hmm. than necessarily a truth. So if I can read this quote, is that sure, all right with you? Sure, go for it. Um, he says, because we do not understand the brain very well, we are constantly tempted to use the latest technology as a model for trying to understand it. In my childhood, we, all, we were always assured that the brain was a telephone switchboard. What else could it be? I was amused to see that Sherrington, the great British neuroscientist, thought the brain worked like a telegraph system. Freud often compared the brain to, a, to hydraulic and electromagnetic systems. Leibniz compared it to a mill, and I am told some of the ancient Greeks thought the brain functions like a catapult. At present, obviously, the metaphor is the digital computer. Right, because it's in front of us, and uh, it, it does a lot of the things that mimic... Um, some of the stuff that we do in our brains. Yep. And so we think it must be like that. Yeah. But not necessarily so. No. I mean, w one of the thing reasons I like this quote so much is because you look back at the old ways of thinking, especially a catapult, right? This is just totally yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. Um, but even some of the, the more recent ones, like a telephone switchboard, and you can kind of see why people thought that way about, oh, yes, this is, this is complicated. The brain's got lots, it's networks of things, and a telephone switchboard is a network of wires. Look at the similarities. Look at the complexity. Um, I can't really understand what's going on with the telephone switchboard. Um, I don't know what's going on with the brain. Maybe something similar is going on. 
I've noticed something similar uh, reported in UFO studies, <laughs> and that is that sightings of UFOs in the 1800s right. looked like the technology right. that was just around right, right. the corner. Yep. Uh, looked like zeppelins, and some of them had propellers and wings and things yes. like that. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, they disappeared. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. People, or they came to real life. <laughs> yeah, maybe they were seeing yeah the future. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. yeah it's uh, people in some ways are not as creative as we might we might think you know mm -hmm. we we need we really rely upon using metaphors for for trying to think about the things that we don't understand um, and I'm always curious about what the next metaphor might be so um, when Searle wrote that quote uh, the digital computer was the metaphor that he pointed out but since then people have also pointed at the internet as another you know a connection of it's even more complicated it's even more right. something that yeah. maybe is another inspiration for for the brain yeah. um, or for a way to think about the brain and and the other thing that i like to point out when talking about this quote is that in a sense none of these are wrong and i mean none of them are right right the brain is not a hydraulic system uh but all of these it's not metaphors, a catapult it's not a catapult so. not not usually um <laughs> but uh it all of these metaphors can be helpful in prompting new ways to think about what's going on yeah. uh, in, inside our skull and yeah. how we're interacting with the world and so on. Yeah. Okay. Um, neuroscientists, they'd be at the coalface of this, wouldn't they? Because yep. that's what we do know is happening in the brain. Nerves. Yes. So, you know, it's interesting to think about the detailed low-level way that we can investigate the brain. We can look at, people have looked at individual neurons, small clusters of neurons, and developed pretty accurate models about some of the properties of neurons. But even a single neuron is a cell, a eukaryotic cell. It's a really complicated piece of machinery, mm. um, insanely complicated. Um, and so we can capture th certain things. People have focused a lot on the electric potential across the membrane of neuron cells and looked at how that can propagate down the cell and cause other neurons to fire. But uh, just this week, uh, or maybe it was just last week, I saw uh, an article um, in Nature Scientific Reports talking about how in some neurons there, uh, there are biophotons. So these are very, very faint flashes of light. Um, and actually these happen not just in neurons, but in various parts of the body. But there's this theory, is, or this, this hypothesis that instead of just uh, information propagating around or signals propagating around the brain by way of electrical signals, it might also be the case that light is, is bouncing around the, inside the axons of neurons um, and also contributing to the dynamics of the, of the brain and therefore to the dynamics of cognition and all of the things that we do every day. Could we uh, put, and has somebody put, a light sensor in somebody's brain? Oh, sorry, it would probably start, unfortunately, with the, uh, um, the rat or something, wouldn't it? <laughs> they probably would, yeah. And I believe they have put these kinds of sensors in, but... Part of what, what this paper is that I saw was focusing on is how these, uh, these, these pulses of light could be focused or channeled. And they're looking, right. I, don't, I don't know how familiar you are with sort of the anatomy of a neuron, but it's a cell with this long tube that takes it to somewhere else, you know, this, called the axon. Mm. And then around the axon are, are some other cells uh, that wrap around it. And these for a long time have been thought of as a way to insulate the cell and hope, help uh, signals propagate, electrical signals propagate quickly along the, the cell. But what this paper is looking at is the possibility that those cells that wrap around are working kind of like a fiber optic cable. They're sort of a reflective thing that allows this, this bi these biophotons to bounce down the axon and actually get to a specific location rather than just a general pulse into 
into the brain. Because it's easily small enough to act like that, isn't sure. it? So the light would bounce a, a, along it. Yes, that's the idea, essentially. Yeah. And then they're going even, even one step crazier, if I can say such a thing, and, and talking about how this might relate to quantum dynamics in the brain. Right, we're uh, talking photons instead of electrons. Yep, and entanglement and some of these concepts that quickly get over my head. I'm, I'm yeah. far from an expert in, uh, it might be in my head, but it's also over my head, right? right. <laughs> no, that's interesting. And yeah. just while we're talking about it, those cells that wrap around that long bit, Yes. Um, when they get damaged, is that multiple sclerosis? Yes, yes. So that's one of, there's a number of different diseases that are brought about by the damage of these, uh, oh gosh, the name's gone out of my head. I want to call them, uh, no, it's gone out of my head, sorry. These, these supporting cells right. that, that uh, you know, there's lots of different types of cells in the brain. Axons are some of them, right. and there's a number of other cells that support uh, the, the axons activity, yeah, or sorry, the, the neurons activity. Yeah, okay, and uh, sensory substitution as well. Um, yes. Should we talk about that? Yeah, so this is uh, just one of my favorite... Uh, sets of experiments uh, that, that point out how adaptive our brains are. Um, so there's some really neat work going on uh, by, uh, uh, led by David Eagleman um, in Texas, where he is using, he's got a vest, okay, it looks like a normal vest that you might put on, but it's a bit snug, so it fits underneath your clothing. And at different positions in this vest are vibrating motors. So there's electric signal that goes to them, and you can turn a, a motor on in your upper left shoulder or your upper right shoulder or different spots on your back or your stomach. Um, and they hook this up to uh, your phone, essentially, and the phone picks up different uh, sound frequencies, so different pitches of sound. Mm. And depending on which frequencies of sound it's hearing, it causes different ones of these motors to light up or to, you know, to, to vibrate. Um, and uh, people initially put this vest on and think, this is weird. I've got a weird vibrating vest that's going on and can't make head, heads nor tails of it. But after some training uh, where they're presented with different people saying different words and being told what they're said and, and so on, then the brain very rapidly starts to use this non-auditory signal to augment their ability to understand words. And they've tested it on people with, with hearing limitations um, and shown in, you know, in, in trials that it, it, can, it can be helpful. Um, and, and helping people be able to understand uh, the words that are being spoken to them. I could easily see how it could be uh, if, if you had one of these vests from a toddler. Right. It, it would just be like another language because yep. it, it doesn't matter how the, um, it's transmitted. It seems our brain is attuned to picking up things that are language, and it doesn't necessarily have to be auditory, does yeah, it? Yeah, but, but it poses a lot of really interesting questions for me as a researcher in artificial intelligence uh, concerning how could I possibly build an artificial system that takes signals in of all different sort of modalities, you know? So I, you build an AI, and, okay, this is going to be the hearing input. And you build a set of functions or tools that are there for processing that hearing input. And then you do the same for some sort of tactile input, you know, touch. Mm. But then the brain just quickly adapts and says, oh, this was touch, but now I'm, I'm starting to, to hear it and, and, and incorporate the information coming in from my damaged ears and from the vibrations on my skin. And it's amazingly adaptive and robust. And it's just, it, it poses a lot of interesting challenges for us as, as engineers uh, in, in artificial intelligence. Yeah. Um, and another sim uh, simpler, uh, or similar 
kind of uh, scenario involves just putting on goggles that flip the world upside down. Oh, yeah, that's a fabulous experiment, yes. isn't it? And so same thing. So you're, there, there you're getting all of the sensory input that's coming in totally new form. Um, and, you know, people put these goggles on and they can't, they can hardly stand up. You know, they're really incapacitated. Um, and then after a month of wearing them, they see they can go skiing, they can ride a bike. Uh, the world looks upside, uh, right side up to them. Um, and go figure. Again, how do you create a system that, that is so robust to these law-like changes in, in what we perceive? And one other interesting aspect of that experiment is that if someone's given these goggles and to, that flip the world upside down and they're just pushed around in a wheelchair, like they're completely passive, they don't adjust. Oh, really? So, so you have to test and monitor. It's your brain is taking the results of all these experiments that are coming in through your body. That's right, exactly. And this is the idea of sensory motor contingency. The idea that what you do influences what you, what you sense in a very rule-like way, a real sort of law-following kind of way. So if you're walking forward, for instance, then things that, and you're keeping your head pointed straight forward, things in the center of your vision will tend to move towards the periphery of your vision and get bigger, right? Mm -hmm. um, and if, whereas if you turn your head or step to the side, then your whole visual field will tend to, to sort of pan to the side. You know, what was mm -hmm. on this pixel, so to speak, of your eye will be a bit to the left. Yeah. Um, but, but the brain is very good. People are very good at, at adapting and learning these rules. And there's, there's some interesting uh, literature out there. There's a book called Why Red Doesn't Sound Like a Bell. And it's saying that the reason that these different sensory inputs have, have different qualia, have different feel to them, is precisely because of the, the different sensory motor contingencies that, that, that are specific to those, those modalities, like the different ways that what we do influences what we sense. I have a real left-field question. All right. Uh, don't know if it's got anything to do with anything, <laughs> but I know I'm not the Lone Ranger. When you were very young, did you have colours for different days of the week? No, um, but there is a name for that. And oh, is this going to go out of my head too? I'm, I'm a bit sleep deprived at the moment, thanks to some some young That's children okay. in my house. But that means you're only six times more intelligent than I am. <laughs> <laughs> there, there is, there is a. It's it's quite a common thing to have this this uh, one modality be influenced by another. So, for instance, people will often see letters as particular colours mm -hmm. um, and numbers. So, you know, every time they see a seven, it will be green or blue. And and they do experiments to show that people aren't making this up. You know, they can ask them one month, ask them a month later. Uh, and they're giving the same answers. Mm. Um, and there's some evidence that suggests a number of artists have been influenced by this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Synesthesia. Synesthesia, thank you. All right. Okay. You're six times smarter than me. Uh -huh. <laughs> no, I just remembered the word. <laughs> yeah, Monday. It's all, it's, Matthew, it's red. Everyone knows Monday's red. Well, okay, what are the other colors of the week? Tuesday's the sort of teal Okay. Color. Yeah. It may have specks in it, actually. Yeah. Specks of darker awesome. green. Yeah. Wednesday is yellow. Yeah. Thursday's brown. Friday's black. Saturday's white. Sunday's blue. Fascinating. Always has been. <laughs> <laughs> Wicked. To, to me. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, you may be playing that at home or just thinking <laughs> we're mad. <laughs> hey, fabulous stuff. Thank you very much, Matthew. Thank, thank and you. Look forward to speaking again. Good I one. Me too. Cheers. The Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival. Get a free program at dockedge.nz. Astronomy Today with Dr. Grant Christie. 
Hello, Grant. Hey, Graham. Uh, as usual, we have some companion links to things that we're talking about astronomy-wise. Um, and one, I'll, we'll play a little bit at the very end because it's just such an inspirational sound for me anyway. And that's Carl Sagan gen oh. gently rattling on about that's life. That's right. That's right. He's really a restful guy to listen to, isn't he? Yeah. I, I just love it. Yeah. And he's, I don't think uh, anyone has done more for public understanding of astronomy, mm. science, and scepticism as well, all yeah. at once. Yeah, no, well, he, he had such a, a gifted way of communicating yeah. things in everyday language that everyone can sort of uh, get their head around. I yeah. mean, he's, he doesn't sort of talk in gook and stuff, and he he uses an emotional appeal. Yeah, which is you know it sort of goes right With to your core science. when you're listening. Yeah, oh, absolutely. He was a top top guy. Yeah, uh, sadly died far too early at the age of sixty something, I think, yeah. of a weird cancer. Um, now we've got that video, Wanderers, it's called, and visually, ah, oh, it's uh, you mentioned this phrase. Uh, last week, astronomy cocaine. Oh, this this really is. <laughs> this is how a sci-fi should look. That's right. It I shows think... people in extraordinary places as they might be if they were on Enceladus. That's right. Or or you know a, a moon of Jupiter, and you've got Jupiter behind you, and people walking along the surface of this moon. It's just yeah. H H H D. Yeah, well, maybe maybe in a century. You know, Maybe. You know, it's that sort of time frame probably before. Um, mm. There's a whole lot of technical issues that need to be solved. But, you know, they're sort of now sort of talking quite seriously about manned uh, missions to Mars, humans going to Mars to explore. Um, mm. You know, we've talked about those sort of things plenty of times over the years. Yeah. Uh, that'll be a big milestone if they can do that. And are all, all the images are from things that are really actually in the solar yes, system. Yes, Yeah, that's marvellous. Go have a look. Uh, go to the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage and just have a click there where it says Wanderers, Carl Sagan's Wanderers. Uh, we also have a beautiful picture of the Magellanic Clouds taken from our hemisphere. Our hemisphere, yes. When I first saw this go picture... Go, the southern hemisphere. I looked at that and I thought, oh, that's Narahoe and uh, Tongariro. Ah. And, uh, yeah, I couldn't place the lake in the foreground, but uh, I thought, hey, what a great shot. And we've got so many really, really gifted astrophotographers in New Zealand that use the New Zealand landscape. I thought, well, it's probably one of ours. But it wasn't, actually. It was taken in Chile. Uh -huh. But nevertheless, it's uh, you'd see it the same that you get the same view of the Magellanic Clouds. And these are the sort of fuzzy, two fuzzy blobs you see in the southern sky. They never set in anywhere in New Zealand. They never go below the horizon. And they are two dwarf galaxies that are, you know, probably gravitationally caught by the Milky Way. That's mm. still not totally certain. The Gaia satellite will probably answer that question for us. Yeah. Maybe not right this year, but big in news last years, week, wasn't it? That was. Mm. So the Magellanic Clouds are just wonderful, and it's one of the gems of the southern sky, and not too many people really give them a lot of thought. I mean, because, you know, you sort of see the Milky Way itself, and you've got these two fuzzier things. Mm. Um, and in the city, of course, the small Magellanic Cloud, you know, you really have trouble seeing it. You can spot the large one just mm. in the middle of Auckland, but uh, out in the countryside, the folks who live in the dark areas, will be, they'll be pretty familiar with them. But the, So these are, you know, two wonderful dwarf galaxies. Um, they're, not, they're not clouds of dust in our solar system. No, not at all. They're not even in our galaxy. They're no. out way over there. That's right. They're sort of like about... Um, about two or three, uh, two times the diameter of our galaxy, 
you imagine our dark galaxy is a disk they're about two times further away really so than that so you know something in that order and uh, they uh, they have different chemistry to the milky way too so uh, like the small magellanic cloud has about a third of the sort of heavier elements than what the milky way does oh. and the bigger one that so i think is around about half the the sort of the sun's metal content or the the content of our sort of part of the galaxy oh, so another opportunity they're wonder, well they're a wonderful test bed for astronomers because they want to understand how you know all these different elements affect the lives of stars and so here we've got our galaxy we can study and we've got two more right in our face that have different metals so you can understand that we find lots of different stars in those two galaxies have fundamental differences mm. to the stars in our galaxy because they just don't have as much of the heavier elements that uh, right. that we have. Oh, I, don't, I don't mean to be galactically racist but what the hell are they doing here with their funny chemistry? Well they've been at some point in the past that probably that they've been captured by the gravity of the Milky Way. The Milky Way is much heavier about it's about um, 20 times the mass of the large one, and even more so than the um, the smaller one. So those are dwarf galaxies, and in due course, uh, over billions of years, they will get um, probably drawn right into the Milky Way. And oh, um, nice we're welcoming. Well, that's something the Milky Way has been doing, you know, for the last ten billion years. Is gradually snaring small galaxies and mm. our galaxies uh, full of uh, stars that have come from other galaxies. Right, essentially we're all immigrants. Yes. Um, <laughs> and I've been looking out for claims uh, that really dud claim. It's a, it's, a, it's a droopy marketing device when you say something is this the biggest pumpkin in the southern hemisphere. You go, oh, uh, that all. Astronomy is the one discipline where that is not a droopy marketing advice because the southern hemisphere is just as good as the northern hemisphere when you're looking out, uh, well, isn't it? Well, it's, it's arguably better. I yeah. mean, we, we, the, the centre of the Milky Way galaxy, which is probably the most important part of the entire sky for all practical purposes, passes right overhead in New Zealand. Mm. So we're at a perfect latitude for that. The, the disadvantage the southern hemisphere has, which I would consider it's an advantage, advantages we haven't got much land so there's a lot of water down here we've got antarctica that's an unexploited uh, region mm. for studying the the night sky or right. the southern hemisphere sky and we can see the magellanic towers you can't see those north of the equator take that northern and so all these northern observatories big ones and so on that's part of the reason a lot of these big observatories were sited in chile because they had and in uh, hawaii you can sort of do it but they're still probably too far north mm. okay mm. um now the big news last week and it will be ongoing big news for a long time the fat release of the data from the Gaia project satellite mapping where stuff is and where it's going and how big it is oh, how I've, far away it is yeah i've been a bit like a kid in a candy store i mean I, uh, first of all the the computer access to the database is really simple anyone can just go on there if you know sort of basically what you're looking for mm. so uh, there's a Do you have to log in with the password no no you can just go there it's all free Wonderful, that makes a change. Wonderful Europeans. Oh, no, they always give it away, the Europeans. Oh, in fact, you know, it, it, that tends to be true for most astronomical data. No, it's, I mean, no, I mean, it makes a change from uh, about 80% uh, of everything else oh, yes. on the internet. Oh, yes, that's yeah. right. Yes, no, no, you, you can just go on there. Um, you can search for a piece of sky, find all the objects that uh, Gaia has observed. Um, I've checked out work that we're doing and st the stars that we weren't sure how far away they were. 
and now guys sort of narrowed that uncertainty down quite a lot and it's in future years it's going to narrow it down even more so in one week you've gone there and found useful stuff that's absolutely oh within days i was on there i was quite surprised that it was so simple uh, and you can also you know give it a piece of sky and say haul down everything in this piece of sky don't make it too big because guy's got huge <laughs> numbers of things it's got 1.7 billion objects measured and so even in a really small piece of sky there's still going to be hundreds if not a thousand or, or more objects that it's catalogued um, so only the, the closer objects uh, it's got new more accurate distances for yeah. um, but as each year goes by and it observes them more and more times the error is going to come down and so you know by the fifth year they, those numbers will be really well nailed I can't wait you know but so you start pulling them down now and yeah. even now they're better than anything that's been done before I think we've got about uh, two and a half million reliable distances to objects now. Where prior to that, it was more like a uh, hundred thousand, uh, uh. and uh, you know, so that's uh, that's really uh, valuable. Um, and so they're able to produce this wonderful graphic, like the one that's on there. And if you zoom into it, you can just see what you know the density of the objects that it's got and yeah. that's only a tiny part of what it's done and, and it's also got all the solar system objects as well previously i've seen images like that where you can zoom in and zoom out but they've been guesses this is what we know oh, this is real stuff yeah that's yeah. right these are and and the other thing is it's measuring it doesn't show on that particular picture that we've posted but there are other ones where it it colours the stars red or blue depending where they're coming towards you away from you uh -huh. and when you see that same picture with the stars coloured you'll see that on one side they're all red and the other side they're all blue because that's the rotation of the galaxy. They are measuring directly the rotation of the Milky Way galaxy while their measurements. Yeah. And uh, so prior to that, uh, radio astronomers were able to measure. We knew the Milky Way was rotating and so on because radio telescopes can use clouds of emission from the hydrogen atoms and they're scattered all through the galaxy and they've been doing that for a long time. But this is giving precise details. I can also tell you the chemistry of all the stars as well, their brightness, their velocity that they're moving at, a fine detail that radio, radio astronomers don't see stars, they see gas. So, whereas Gaia is now doing the same thing but measuring actual stars and the flow of stars, and they'll be able to track all these galaxies that have been absorbed, like, you know, sometime in the future the, Mer the Magellanic Clouds will be absorbed by the Milky Way. That's been happening all through the Milky Way's history, and there are lots of these little dwarf galaxies that have been absorbed, and Gaia is going to tell us where they are, those stars are from those mergers because ah. it can identify them because they'll all have a common sort of velocity and a common chemistry. It's like the Dunedin Linear Study. Isn't it? Yes. We know where you've gone. We've kept track of that. Yeah, oh, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling, Graham. It's, it really is phenomenal. Yeah, awesome. Uh, and just a reminder, you may have missed it uh, because it was a latish decision to include it last week. Uh, we replayed the interview with um, the founder, head guy. I know it's a team, but that'll do for now. Uh, Jerry Gilmore, yeah. a, a kid from Timaru. That's right. Uh, replayed the interview with him about the Gaia uh, mission and that's up in last week's astronomy piece online if you want to see it you, you, there's grant's piece at the top and just a little lower down we thought it'd be nice to put the jerry gilmore interview yep. in full and it's right there a professor at university of cambridge yes and a fellow of the royal society which is a, in britain which is a very uh prestigious honor yeah yeah you think of names like 
Hook Newton. Yes, that's right, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Okay. Oh, well, hats off again to the Gaia mission. Now, solar minimum, uh, that's the, the sun gets busier and more magnetic and ferocious and angry, and then it calms down and more angry over about an 11-year cycle? It averages at 11 years, yeah, the solar cycle. And uh, it's been a... It's been you know, going for a long time. I mean, it was, it's been known sort of really from the mid-1800s, you know, that was the first time that uh, somebody actually sort of looked at and actually worked out a number uh, of, you know, an 11-year, roughly 11-year cycle. Um, because, you know, even with the simple telescopes of the 18th century and uh, so you could um, you could actually see sunspots. You don't have to have very good optics to see the sunspots there and count them and look at it every day. And so so people have been doing that sort of through their lives and that's, that's a historical record today it's all done you know satellites we've got a fleet of satellites looking at the sun so nothing escapes notice but so the the strengths of these maximas the solar maximum when the sun's really active and lots of sunspots that varies uh, as well so it's that's varying on 11 year cycle but the strength of them's varying as well and they're really hard to predict you can sort of see in the historical record the cycles of uh, strong and then it goes off again you know for another 50 60 years and then it comes back on again um, and Nobody can really predict what the sun's going to do next. They've got a whole bunch of uh, experts that advise, uh, you know, uh, what they think is going to happen. But basically, there are no models that seem to work. You simply have to wait and see what the sun does. And when it does, you say, oh, yeah, of course. Do you happen to know when somebody, bless functional autism, um, started counting sunspots? Yeah, well, they go back in sort of the 1600s. Okay. It really required a telescope, although you do see sunspots with the naked eye occasionally. I've seen a few. I remember one seeing one when I was at school through a, on a foggy morning. I looked up and I could see the sun's disk very dim by the fog in Mount Albert, and uh, then I suddenly realised there was a little spot there. Really? So I finally, I've never I got seen out my. That. I got out by monoculars. Yeah, I, you see it occasionally. I, I mean, I saw one you know, not too long ago, actually, and it wasn't at solar maximum. But, yeah, so a sunspot has to be a decent size, but they certainly do occur at that size, and you can see them with the naked eye. Right. And just the, remi- the proviso, as always, um, the only time you can look at the suns at n- with, with safety is yeah, at night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can... <laughs> well, you you get these solar thing, the solar viewers that you use for eclipses, and they if you keep a, don't throw them away, keep them in a drawer, so you can always pop them on and go outside, and you know every now and again you'll see a a, a large sunspot. But so far this year, there's been uh, 60% of the days so far this year have had no sunspots. Um, so that's uh, so we're. And it's actually running below prediction. So they've got this, so these people that sort of stare at the tea leaves and try to figure out what the sun's going to do next have mm. under, overestimated the number of sunspots expected. Um, you know, it's debatable as to whether we're going to go into what's called the Maunder Minimum type of phenomena, where for like sort of 60, 70 years during the sort of, you know, from about 1630 on over that period, uh, the, you know, there were almost no sunspots at all. So wow. it, the solar cycle broke down completely during that time. And you think that might be? It could be a lucky break to give us an extra <laughs> couple of years to get um, climate change well, under control. I don't know if it is lucky. I mean, it increases the amount of cloud. That's one thing. So that reflects light. So basically, during solar minimum, you get more cloud formation. You also get a lot more uh, cosmic rays uh-huh. creeping through uh-huh. uh, because the solar magnetic field is not as strong. Um, and uh, I mean, we see. Cosmic rays hitting our camera that we use on the telescope at night. 
these are you're sitting there and you see these little tracks right <laughs> uh, left on the on the images not from the sun from way somewhere yeah, else some of them can yeah, that's right some of them they most of them are coming from um, the cosmos but the solar magnetic field and its activity has a profound effect on mm -hmm. it and it also affects how bloated the earth's atmosphere is at solar minimum the earth's atmosphere shrinks in and isn't as puffed up during solar maximum, it's getting more energy from the sun, and so it's more puffed up. And this affects the, the behavior of satellites. Uh, so things like the space station during solar maximum will be experiencing more drag from the upper reaches of the atmosphere huh. than at solar minimum, and they have to constantly adjust the space station's altitude, so otherwise it'll just keep losing altitude and burn up. So they have to keep adjusting it. So uh, it means that space junk doesn't burn up as easily during solar minimum because there's not as much drag and it takes a lot longer for the junk just above the atmosphere to actually come in and burn up so there's all sorts of consequences of of solar minimum space weather space weather do black holes wander the galaxy well we know we've got them well well there's, there's two, a couple of things here one is there's a supermassive one right in the middle of the galaxy we know about that that's about four million times the mass of the sun that's a monster and all galaxies appears at the size of the milky way have a monster uh, black hole in the centre. It seems to probably that's the reason that the galaxy even exists. Uh, it's still not clear. Um, some galaxies we know have solar, uh, have black holes that are many billions of times the mass of the sun, so thousands of times heavier than the one in our galaxy. So our galaxy is fairly modest. But the question, and we know that there's black holes that are caused by supernovae uh, or sort of uh, the deaths of massive stars. Those we call stellar mass black holes. So they sort of have masses that are in line with the mass of a star or some way. They may be ten times the mass of the sun or something like that. You know, heavy stars produce black holes often when they uh, collapse and die. Mm -hmm. um, what they're talking about in this is are them sort of what we'd call um, black holes that are maybe, if not thousands of times the mass of the sun, up to, you know, um, you know, sort of tens of thousands. I know these are not, can't be made by a star. Um, and in theory, the galaxy should have them because the Milky Way has been built up by the mergers of over the history of its history over billions of years, sucking in these small galaxies like the Magellanic Clouds and that sort of thing. Mm. Um, and the theory is that all of those have sort of pretty massive black holes in the middle. We can't always see that they're there, but uh, that's the theory. And so when they get absorbed by a big galaxy, uh, all the stars get sort of spread out and homogenised within the galaxy, which hopefully will decode mm. for us, but they're black holes still orbiting around. And if the black hole happened to be orbiting around in the sort of roughly in the plane of the disk of the galaxy, just by the chance of the way it came into our galaxy, so uh -huh. then there's a lot of material there for it to interact with, and, it, and the drag would cause it to spiral into the centre relatively quickly. But if it came in at a high angle, so most of the time it was way above the disk or way below the disk, then it would take much longer than the age of the uh, current age of our galaxy to ever get to the centre, because great basically big massive black holes in our galaxy should in theory be slowly you know falling towards the center and be mm. sort of absorbed into the one in the center but that can take place over a long time so so far nobody's found a um uh, any evidence of a, a, a massive black hole in our galaxy other than the one that's right in the middle oh. we know about stellar ones but not uh, and there's probably a lot more than we we of those that we haven't found but so i don't need to don a hard hat immediately you don't need to but uh, it's uh, so you know this it's this migration of um 
of the, the these black holes that we've acquired, our galaxies acquired from mergers of smaller galaxies. The question is, what are out there? And uh, unless something's falling into a black hole, you don't generally know it's there. Mm. Um, unless you happen to look past it and look at a, a distant galaxy behind it, and you can see that it's warped by, because the black hole will warp the shape of it, you'll get gravitational lensing, as they call it. Mm. And so, but those are kind of flukes. And so, you know, if we had, um, say, a hundred sort of uh, these intermediate type mass black holes that are floating around the Milky Way, the chance of one of those happening to line up with a galaxy in the distance that would allow lensing to uh, display its presence might be a very unlikely event. So, you know, um, at the moment it's, it's being done by, you know, basically simulations, computer simulations, looking at galaxy simulations over time, and the simulations say our Milky Way should have a bunch of these massive black holes that how haven't are, been found. How are massive black holes made then? Because, I mean, we always see depictions in documentaries. You get a star, it blows up, the, it's a shrinky bit in the middle, turns into a black hole, there's your black hole. How do they, you get big, big, big The big, big ones. ones are more puzzling. They, they, there's one possibility is that they come into existence something to do with the way the Big Bang happened. Wow. Because some of these black holes, when we look back at very distant galaxies, when they were very young, therefore, so we're looking at these with a Hubble Space Telescope, you can see galaxies that uh, where they have measured black holes in their centre. So, and some of these objects uh, have, um, you know, six billion times the mass of the sun. No. So, so something like six thousand times, or, or some in that order, more massive than the, uh, uh, you know, than the one in our galaxy. So, and these are existing at a time when the universe was only like half a billion years old. Right. And it's not known at this time how a black hole that massive can form that early in the universe, mm. given the rate at which you could stuff stuff into it. Mm. I mean, nobody knows how, why they're that heavy and, uh, uh, and how they got that way. One way theory is that, you know, somehow they come out of the Big Bang itself. These are objects that are somehow produced by the Big Bang and... Mm. They end up nucleating and causing galaxies to form around them. This is Stephen Hawking's strong suit, really, as far as his work, uh, scientific work, went, and that's uh, black holes. His final paper has just been published after his death. Yes, that's right. Um, and, uh, well, it's sort of interesting. I don't understand enough of it to really speak. You'd have to get Richard Easter or somebody on mm. from University of Auckland, a cosmologist, to really sort of dissect it. But... Um, Basically, one of the puzzles uh, uh, that's always troubled scientists is that there are certain physical constants in our universe that if they were just a tiny bit different, then life could never have started, atoms wouldn't have formed, and we would have had a sort of very vacant sort of kind of universe. And it's called the fine-tuning problem. So how do you get uh, out of the Big Bang... Uh, a universe that comes into existence that does allow us to even exist, mm -hmm. given that that should be a very improbable event. Mm -hmm. And so one of the answers is, well, hey, let's just make huge numbers of universes and given enough time and enough universes, sooner or later, a fluke's going to happen and so here we are. Um, and most universes do nothing, you know, they go no place. So what Hawking's theory is that he's done with uh, another uh, guy... Um, who actually did, did the presenting of it, um, they argue that uh, they, they've come up with a theory based on string theory, which I also don't 
mm. really understand in detail, but basically the, uh, they've come up with this idea that uh, simplifies the whole process. And uh, so what their, their new theory shows, you know, that there is a process by which you could end up with a, um, a uh, far fewer, a far smaller range of universes forming mm. um, and that uh, so the chance of one's having us us in it or mm. you know it's a life being possible atoms uh is um is a lot uh, uh more favorable than the other idea mm. and also they're sort of talking about um uh, that what our universe is is a pocket universe so the sort of the current view about by cosmologists is that uh, basically this idea of um uh, sort of permanent inflation so the universe started off with a sort of a you know, it's a massive expansion rage, rage, which you need to explain the geometry of the universe, basically. Mm. Um, and nobody really sort of doubts that somehow that inflation event happened. Um, but uh, what they're saying is that, uh, and Hawking and Co. as well, uh, is they're saying that basically there are little pockets of ordinary universe that isn't inflating comes into existence and we're one of those pockets but there's lots of this infinite number of other pockets and the universe is expanding still expanding and inflating in big chunks of it but we are in a pocket where the inflation has stopped oh that's nice yeah well it's just as well but uh <laughs> otherwise you'd be very stretchy man right <laughs> but uh so it's the whole thing i mean it, it gets really obscure a lot of this stuff mm. um but they do say that, you know, there's a way this could be tested by looking for gravitational waves, of course. Um, we have LIGO detector uh, that found merging black holes. Mm. Um, the gravitational waves from that come from a cosmological thing rather than two merging black holes in sort of relatively recent times, yeah. um, they... Uh, they are a much longer wavelength so the, than the, we've got detectors for. So LIGO couldn't see them because the wavelength of these gravitational waves that they're predicting would be a consequence of their theory can't be tested yet. Mm. But there's a satellite called uh, LISA uh, on the drawing board by with the European Space Agency and that's putting a basically a gravitational wave detector into space and that would have the capability of detecting the long wavelength gravitational waves. I mean, it's probably 30 years away from oh, okay. existing, so we probably won't be talking about it. But, uh, you know, there's people, young kids listening that might well be around yeah. to see whether that's real. Yeah. Never know. One of them might remember this show. <laughs> it's possible. I remember Carl Sagan's stuff. Yeah. Um, and before you get too excited... Um, religious apologists about it must be God uh, with this to create a universe just so finely tuned for life. 99.9999999% of the species on Earth have gone extinct. <laughs> we nearly went extinct. That's right. 99.9999999 recurring uh, it, uh, of the area of the Earth and the mass of the Earth we can't live in. It's dreadful for life. <laughs> Um, and the same for space. Yes. It's made for black holes. Not, yeah. It's a, it's a tough place to try to live. Yeah. And we're lucky we just got through. Okay. Um, thank you very much, Grant. Uh, Stephen Hawking uh, popularised a lot of this 
big, deep, sinky stuff and uh, astronomy, as well as Carl Sagan. We'll leave you with a bit, as promised, of his beautiful thing, Wanderers. And visually, man, it's stunning too. So go have a look. It's on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. Click at the top for this weekend's show, and uh, it should be very clearly displayed there. Grant, thank you very much. Thanks, Grant. For all its material advantages, the sedentary life has left us edgy, unfulfilled. Even after 400 generations in villages and cities, we haven't forgotten. The open road still softly calls, like a nearly forgotten song of childhood. We invest far off places with a certain romance. The appeal, I suspect, has been meticulously crafted by natural selection as an essential element in our survival. Long summers, mild winters, rich harvests, plentiful game. None of them lasts forever. Your own life, or your bands, or even your species might be owed to a restless few, drawn by a craving they can hardly articulate or understand, to undiscovered lands and new worlds. Herman Melville in Moby Dick spoke for wanderers in all epochs and meridians. He said, I am tormented with an everlasting itch for things remote. I love to sail forbidden seas. The Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival. New Zealand's premier documentary film festival. Documentary Edge Festival's underway. Hard to miss it, isn't it? Well, that's a good thing. We'll take you through uh, some previews of what's on offer with James Crute after news, sport and weather. Very good evening, everybody. It's 9 o'clock, we're just about.